0: Trouble is, there hadn't been any sexual problem between Miss Scott and me. You very early learned in this business that a cab driver is not a man, at least not to a good-looking woman. Women who wouldn't dream of having a casual chat with a strange man on the sidewalk or in Bloomingdale's will have long, relaxed talks with cab drivers because they know there's no possibility of misunderstanding. And the cabbie knows it, too. The exceptions don't last long. Women in my cab have told me about their love lives, their operations, their troubles with their mothers, their difficulty with the next-door peeping Tom and I don't know what all. If the same women had the same things, said the same things to me at a party, I would have assumed we were in the open skirmishes of a flirtation, but not in a cab. That's neutral territory, and everybody knows it. It's like a cop not drinking on duty or a clerk not taking personal calls at the office. You don't even think about it. We are very excited for this episode because we're talking Donald Westlake. We're talking a new book that just came out through Hard Case Crime called Call Me a Cab. Here at the Pink Smoke we are huge giant fans of Donald Westlake myself John Cribbs and Chris Funderberg am I I'm not speaking out of turn here Mr. Funderberg No right?
1: I named my son Parker after uh after the Parker books which Donald Westlake obviously wrote under his pseudonym Richard Stark so uh it is no it is not talking out of turn in any way in any way uh, um and so uh, this is obviously when there's a new Donald Westlake book coming out, especially because he died several years ago. So this is one of the the posthumous novels that's being published. Supposedly the last one. The afterword says that they believe this will be the last thing they've managed to to find in his papers to to publish posthumously. Uh, this is so it's it's thrilling both uh, uh, because it's a new Donald Westlake and thrilling because it's the last one we'll get to read probably the last new one uh, apart from the the holes in our uh knowledge of the other things he's written this'll this'll be the last new one which is also you know i try not to be uh elegiac about things uh i'm excited for it you know it's a cause for celebration not a cause to be to be bummed to be thinking about how we're reaching the some measure of finality in his oeuvre right
0: well that's a great thing about writers because unlike a filmmaker say who makes their last film and then passes away, you know, there's not going to be any more films because they are not here to make that film. But writers could, you know, very conceivably, like Westlake, have unpublished material, things that were only published in small increments, like this one was. Yeah. So he died in 2008, and here we are, 2022, expecting a new book from Donald Westlake. So I always think about our friend Kevin Maher saying, uh, I think he calls it a finite preservation of artwork by his favorite artist. You know, he tries to, you know, slowly read like one book a year by an artist that he likes or a writer that he likes and i you know i'm 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 with that and i understand it's sad but for someone as prolific as westlake it's just great to get stuff that you've never seen before all these years after his passing and you know he's someone you can just go back and, and appreciate everything all over again because there is so much to enjoy and to love about the work that he put out there in the world.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think also a difference with novelists as opposed to filmmakers is a lot of novelists have that like sad tailing off period. You know, they're, they're burying the ex, you know, where they do make sort of movies where they don't have the mystery of Oberwald you know, period, where they don't have the money they used to, and they're stuck with scripts that you're puzzled for what they're doing. And you sort of watch them die in slow motion in a way you don't with novelists, where novelists are still generally uh, somewhere near the top of their game, or at least um, it's not whatever's changed about their work or is diminished about their work in their old age, isn't dispiriting and depressing in the same way. If they create minor works in their old age, it's only because they've changed and people change. It's not because you need to marshal a massive amount of resources behind you in order to create anything. And as those resources diminish, maybe you just, you can't do what you used to do. So I think that, you know, if I heard that it's like, why I'm not going to see like, you know, the, the Orson written on the wind, the Orson Welles movie. It's just like, it's impossible to imagine that it's up to the standard of the other stuff. I guess it's not impossible to imagine. He certainly was a filmmaker who only made compromised masterpieces apart from Citizen Kane, everything else is compromised. But, but if they dug up a new, you know, uh, who's, who's somebody, if they dug up a new Romer film I wouldn't be like, I bet this is one of the best ones. I bet I'm really going to like this. You'd be, I bet this thing's going to be a problem, would be my, my reaction to it in some way. Right, of And in fact, I just watched a Romer film from 1964 called Nadja in Paris, which I'd never seen before, which is streaming, uh, streaming on the Criterion channel right now. And it is indeed terrible. It is indeed a worthless movie. So <laughs> there you go. Although certainly not at the end of his life. Right, no, that's absolutely true what
0: you said. And also we're not dealing with late period Westlake in this case this is yeah. something that he wrote in the late 70s which was originally published uh, as a novella in Red Book in 1979 and they managed to with the help of Abigail Westlake his wife gather a lot of the original drafts and pretty much put together everything that he wrote for this and it came out as a complete book and that's what we got so we got something from you know when he was in the middle of writing the Parker series and doing Dortmunder and all the classic stuff that everybody loves you know like his his height the height of his creativity so that's exciting too
1: yes i absolutely although in the afterward you you come to understand and we'll talk about we should do our aperitif and dessert pairings before we get too much into the book but they did sort of it seems like this is stitched together from various versions that this is not the version westlake had in mind this seems to be his editor and his widow Deciding that this would be the best version of the existing versions, right, uh, right, and I course. can, and when we get more into the book, I can, I can say what I think about that, and I think I agree with it based on on what supposedly was added, the major chunks that were added, and things like sure. that. Sure.
0: No, last time we, yeah, last time we talked about uh, a hard case release of a Westlake book, it was his book Enough, which they had changed the title to Double Feature, and just the title change by itself is like, you know, well, that's a pretty, you know, big change for something to actually change the title of an artwork but we both agreed that that was probably a good choice you know <laughs> that was probably the right way to go with that so I trust these guys and that's why I went into this without any kind of hesitation at all and just pure excitement but just as a way of introducing it for my aperitif uh, I should mention very first that this is a road story you know like the classic road travelogue stories um, of literature the classic road movies you obviously read this and you'll think about it happened one night and easy Rider and two lane blacktop and paper moon, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to eat to mama, 10 yeah. films like Kings that. of
1: the road, all of the, yeah. The
0: all wind vendors. Ben the- exactly. Yeah. So I was definitely going to pick a road movie to start off with, to say, this is something that you should dig into before read the book, but, but which one there's so many great ones, you know, it's such a great kind of subgenre. And so my thought was, all right, I'm going to pick a story of two characters traveling from New York to the West, just like in the book. They initially planned to fly out there, but then they decided to hit the road. Uh, this work also came out in the 70s, just
1: like the original version of this. So it's not big... Force of Nature with Ben Affleck and Sandra Bullock. I thought that came out in the 70s. That was That's what I up until that you've been describing Force of Nature pretty <laughs> accurately.
0: Well, I'm going to get rid of Force of Nature. I'm going to get Force of Nature out of your head with this. The big difference is that instead of a real estate developer, the male lead's passenger is his cat. I'm talking of course of Harry and Tonto, the Paul Mazursky <laughs> film with Art Carney.
1: You're on a big Mazursky kick recently, that's hard for me to understand. But go on. Well,
0: it's it, no, that's it's good to bring up because Mazursky is a kind of a frustrating figure in that, you know, think he he's half genius and half complete hack, you know. I mean, it, within the same movie sometimes, you know, there'll be like two or three brilliant scenes in a film and then the rest is just just kind of, not even schlock, but just kind of mundane and uninspiring. And certainly the filmatism is not, you know, up to his peers. Uh, I think the talent of his peers, but this one is delightful. Obviously, R. Carney is always fun to watch. And like many of these films, they have many fun road adventures where he and his cat Tonto run into, you know, kind of eccentric figures and have their kind of little subplots that take place along the way. And so as far as a road movie goes, I think this one is, you know, at least you know, uh, tangible to the the book that we're going to be talking about here. It's funny too, because so many road movies, when you, when you just think about it off the top of your head, you mm-hmm. think about like the existentialism in them, right? That they, the characters don't really have a strong purpose or a destination. It's more, you know, uh, just about being on the road and kind of the journey itself. Westlake though, I think doesn't go down that route. I think it's more in the kind of tradition of it happened one night or Dutch, if you will, where the characters... <laughs> kind of set off and they have a very specific idea where they want to go, what they want to do. And there's a decision to be made and that the journey itself changes all of that. It's so it was a, a, a screwball yeah. kind of story.
1: Yeah. It was a very hard for me to find analogs to this movie. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was just going to say uh, this uh, thing, yeah. an incredible variety of films. And, and I, I agree with you. Um, it happened one night might be uh, a good one. The, the, um, Uh, Or that you made me think of uh, Remember the Night with with Barbara Stanark and Fred McMurray, uh, written by Preston Sturges. That made me think of that as as well as maybe an interesting thing to compare it to. It's hard to find analogs, especially literary analogs and. You know, I was thinking of road movies as well. And for my dessert pairing, you know, we didn't explain the concept, but every book we talk about beforehand, we have an aperitif pairing for you to watch or read to get into the right mindset before you uh, read the book and then a dessert pairing to take you out when you're done. I'm going to have a road movie, uh, one that we haven't mentioned yet for my for my dessert pairing. Um, But it was it was hard to think of analogs and we can get into why, let me just very quickly give you my aperitif pairing, which is you should look at the paintings of one Maurice Utrillo, right? Maurice Utrillo, right, John? Why do? Why should you look at that, those paintings? Because they're great. Because every Holiday Inn, they keep on stopping at Holiday Inns in this book, right? And every room is exactly the same. And he says that on yes. every wall, there's a pair of Utrillos. Uh, and I don't even know how to describe Utrillo's work—he does these sort of crude, charmingly like, uh, crummy cityscapes of like French peasant life. You know, just kind of like not even French peasant life, but just like street life in Paris, kind of thing. And they're they're really rudimentary in some way. I have no idea what his reputation is. He's somebody that I associate with like kitsch and crap art. You know, he he really is kind of like. Uh, not that great, but I think if you look at his paintings first a little bit, maybe you'll get something out of them. You'll like them more. I think it's a good thing to think about every time they stop in a holiday inn and our hero in this book talks about seeing the Utrillo's on the wall. Right. So that's the, that's the pairing I came up with for this. That'll
0: Uh, definitely get you in the mindset of these characters as they're (laughs) on the road for sure.
1: And, and I, I should admit that I didn't really know much about Utrillo. I, it's just it like contrived sort of hackiness is what came to mind. But I didn't conjure any specific paintings. So when I was reading, I was like, let me go look up some of his stuff. And it's even worse than I thought it was. Like, I think I remembered the good ones. And then you watch it. They really are. they're just kind of I don't know, maybe serious painting uh, aficionados will tell me how I'm wrong, but they, they look like uh, they look like crap to me. And uh, mm-hmm. and it, and it made, definitely made the experience of the holiday ends more dispiriting. That's why late in the book, when they want to go to the holiday end, because they love the holiday ends, and I was like, what? Everything about, you've made them sound miserable. <laughs> How can you want to go to the holiday end? When you yeah, don't wanna... but
0: that's such a smart kind of, you know, traveler's observation, you know, someone who goes across America. Uh, and it was just fun to reading this and remembering my own trip across, you know, in a, in a car across the country where... I broke down in Denver too. Like I broke down in Colorado, just like these guys do, um, you know, and, and having that sense of the monotony, obviously of like so many of the flat States and, you know, kind of like the fun well, we'll get landscapes, which yeah. is the dreary ones. I mean, I'm just, I'm just saying that that kind of like is the whole tone of this book. I love that. It's uh, dedicated to Abby, to Abigail, his wife, who he writes as fellow traveler. Cause I know the two of them did a lot of traveling together. I know that they, co-wrote a book at the Mohawk Mountain House just across the river from where I live because they would go there for the big mystery uh, games that they would have and then they wrote a murder mystery together based on their experiences there and um, and I know that their final trip unfortunately where he passed away was a vacation to Mexico so that's very sad thing to bring up but the point is I know that they love to go around everywhere together so you get the feeling of like his impressions of America in this book and I'm curious we'll talk about it later like why he didn't want to expand it and turn it into a novel during his lifetime, you know, because there is so much of him in this. But before I get into all that, let's get into
1: the plot. We're kind of just kind of dive into. Let this. me say so, one thing. Yeah, I'm glad I'm talking with you about this book too. Was the other thing we we're talking about travel? I you are unquestionably, apart from my family, the person I've taken the most road trips with. In my life, I don't think there's anybody you know, like dozens of road trips with you, you know, because we go to the Toronto Film Festival every year. So we go there and come back. But we've traveled other places to, to New Orleans and Pennsylvania and many other places. You're somewhere. Sure. Florida. Yeah. <laughs> that was an enjoyable road trip. It was a long one. Yeah, that was. That was good. Um, <laughs> now I just want to tell stories from that trip on here. unradio <laughs> radio friendly stories. Uh Um, but yeah, but it's kind of, it's kind of funny that it's you I'm talking about this with, but it's like, you're, you're like the road trip guy. We've known each other since the first day of college, since a week before college started. And we have certainly traveled a huge amount together in that time, you know?
0: Yes, absolutely. It's been too long since we've had a road trip together. Um,
1: well, I, I hate you now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I'm not pleasant to be around these days. Uh,
1: the plot it of used call to be about cab. the music man used <laughs> to want to go see the bands now you have to like stop buy food sorry i don't even know where i'm going
0: <laughs> use the bathroom i thought i had a bit i never used to I, use the bathroom i
1: thought before. i had a bit john <laughs> there was no
0: bit there the plot of call me a cab is that new york cab driver tom fletcher picks up as his fair katherine scott a young woman who is a landscape designer and she is going to be going to the airport because she's flying out to LA to meet with Barry Gilbert, her fiance. He wants an answer from her, not, not, his, not, his fiance, not his fiance, because she has not answered whether or not he will marry she will marry him or not. She's not decided. He wants her to come out and he's going to convince her to marry him and move out to LA and be with him. She is very, very indecisive. So she actually decides, rather than taking a plane, she asks Tom if he will drive her literally from new york to los angeles and in the week or so that will take them to get there she is going to think about this ruminate upon this and by the time they reach la she'll come up with an answer this is initially kind of you know tom sort of of takes us with a grain of salt but then when he you know she actually says i will pay whatever the expenses are and he calls the dispatch and they tell him the cab company is owned by his father by the way um you know how much
1: 4,000
0: bucks plus expenses right and she readily agrees to it because she's got the money that's what they do so they set right off tom and and Catherine together they just met but they're going to drive across the country to la and she's going to decide by the time she gets there whether or not she marries and that's sort of the driving narrative of this um and these two characters the ones we're going to be spending the entire book with and it's narrated by tom uh for people who are not, you know, Westlake super aficionados and have not read a ton of his books, uh, I will just uh, kind of give this a little bit of insight. This is very similar to what are called his nephew books. Uh, those are books that he's written sort of around the same time the late 60s, early 70s. Standalone books, not part of his Parker series or his Dortmunder books, in which a youngish male protagonist who's maybe a little brighter than his lowly station in life might indicate he's Smart, he's likable, he's a sidewalk philosopher. Maybe he's a little bit lazy and unambitious or downwardly mobile, as Tom puts it in this book.
1: A real Certainly John someone, Cribs type.
0: <laughs> real John Cribs. <laughs> Certainly not someone you'd want to get involved with in the kind of things these characters get involved with. Usually it's a dangerous situation involving killers or criminals, or at least shady individuals trying to pull a fast one. Um, but he gets involved because of the girl, right? This knockout girl who comes into his life, who he's just, you know. Completely smitten with, and just follows her. goes over the deep end with her. And the books I'm specifically talking about here are The Fugitive Pigeon, The Busybody, The Spy in the Ointment, God Save the Mark, Somebody Owes Me Money, Up Your Banners, I Gave at the Office, Help, I'm Being Held Prisoner, Brothers Keepers, Money for Nothing. There are a lot of a lot of Donald Westlake books that have this kind of protagonist in them, and Tom really fits the mold very well.
1: Yeah. Uh, And he says
0: he has a temporary job for the rest of his life is a very nephew kind of thing for him to say.
1: Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned somebody owes me money. That's the one, obviously, I immediately thought of when reading this, because that's about a cab driver who picks up a crazy dame fare that throws his life completely off track. And that's one of the things that needs to be said with this book, right, is one of the um, one of the first books we talked about when we started doing this podcast, was a Westlake book, Forever and a Death, right? That might have been the second or third novel we talked about. It was very early on. And Forever and a Death was a Bond script he had written for a James Bond movie that the, the Broccolis has decided not to use very late in the process that he decided to repurpose into a standalone novel. So it was always referred to. It was another one published posthumously that was referred to as the Bond book he had written. So you read it thinking it's going to be anything like James Bond, and it's nothing like a fucking James Bond movie. He was obviously trying to not get sued and get permission to make his own book and not have it resemble James Bond anyway. So it gets called like a James Bond book. When you hear Call Me a Cab and you've read Somebody Owes Me Money and you know a little about the the nephew books that you think, oh, I know what this is. But like the Bond book, it's kind of a bait and switch. I mean, even more so than the Bond one, especially if you look at, you know, the, the beautiful Paul Mann cover of this book, you know, that's done in the style of a traditional like you know uh, exploitation noir book uh, kind of novel. Um, you think that this is going to be Westlake doing a crime novel, and it is not. It is not whatsoever. The back of the book tries to sell it that way. The afterward tries to sell it that it has something to do with the rest of Westlake's work, and it really truly doesn't. It's just a romance. There is nothing Westlake-ish about it in terms of narrative plot action, right? Really what we described is the narrative action is that she's trying to decide whether to get married or not while we have this cab driver who's not uh, uncharming in his own right, being charmed by her and their relationship slowly developing, right? right? But that is one of the things that, you know, I never read plot descriptions or anything like that. And I happen to just like did I happen to like 70 pages into this book I read the back description to be like what it where is this going you know because I did think it was going to be a Westlake book in the way you think of Donald Westlake and Richard Stark and that kind of the axe or you know or you know the man with the getaway face you know what a Westlake book is you know Drowned Hopes you know what a Westlake book is right even the funny ones you know what they're like and and the back blurb is like, it's a suspense book, a crime novel with no crime is what they keep saying. And it's like, no, it's it's not a crime novel with no crime. It's a novel, it's, it's a <laughs> romance. And it's funny, you and I have been trying to find somebody to do a romance novel episode with us for a while. We talk about all these different genre books. Let's go into a genre we don't know anything about. We finally found one to do and a great guest to do with it. And then right before we do that episode, we read another romance novel, you know, it's <laughs> yeah. like, what are the chances?
0: That's fine. Well, yeah, in his afterwards, you know, uh, Charles Dye, who's, you know, in charge over it at Hard Case, compares it to Brothers Keepers, which is a fantastic book. One of Wessex's absolute best about these monks who live in a monastery in New York that's going to be dest- demolished. They, they've, they've lost their lease on it. it's going to be demolished and they are trying to save it. They're trying to do whatever they can to save it which Westlake originally had written as a crime book, you know, cause he originally called it the felonious monks, but then decided it was, he liked these guys too much to get them involved in crime. So it turned out to just be a straight, as you say, romance, uh, you know, a dive, you know, compares us to brothers keepers. And I think even more so than somebody owes me money, which is about a cab driver. It, this has a lot to do with brothers keepers. I think Tom at one point even compares himself to a priest as a cab driver who can't get involved with his fare. You know, that he's like a, somebody who, has taken an oath to be professional, you know, in this situation, but um, I think that was a really good comparison, and it proved that Westlake, you know, more than anything, you know, was able to throw some some guns and some kidnappings and some capers into his his books. But at his heart, you know, he had this in him. He had the idea that he could write a straight story that was just a romance and had no crime. So you're sitting there reading it, thinking, so Barry Gilbert's going to turn out to be some kind of uh, he's going to be involved with some bad people. He's a plastic surgeon in L.A
1: it's not just that you're thinking where's the twist you're thinking where's the hook this is a very strange novel in that way where it's it's really you get to the hook 10 pages in of they're going to go to los angeles together and there's no twist and there's no hook beyond that uh and so it it's very surprising that way uh uh brothers keepers is uh uh, has a lot more plot to it. You know, they still get up to shenanigans. They still have like plot machinations and it's, it's a surprising book. This is not that this is what this was, this is what I was saying is I had a very hard time thinking of analogs to this book. It was very hard to think of things to compare it to, uh, in any way. Um, one of the few movies that I, it reminded me of, First off, well, this is a com- com- complicated conversation. I don't want to just start talk only about possible comparisons for it, but um, it has it has a dime store novel's approach to language and story and characterization, right? But a story that would be more at home either in a literary work or a sheer mass market crowd pleaser, right? so it's sort of, it's, it's neither of those things. It's neither a literary work or a sheer crowd pleasing romance novel. You know, this is not, uh, the notebook, although with a little tweaking, you could easily make it that you can see why Redbook wanted to publish it, you know, and, and what Redbook's thinking was on it. Um, but it's, but it's also not like, it's not like John Updike or Michael Chabin or something. It's just not, it's not that kind of story. It's so slight in nature. It's an anti-epic. And so, you know, it did remind me of Walker Percy, maybe a little bit, maybe just because of his essay on the Grand Canyon got Mm -hmm. me thinking of that. Maybe because the moviegoer has a certain similar aimlessness to it and disaffected main character whose decision is to do nothing and life is to sort of let it, let it uh uh sweep over him in some way um it also reminded me of richard linkletter's it's impossible to learn to plow by reading books which oh, is just yeah just linkletter it's basically a narrativeless movie it's just linkletter himself he stars in this movie it's his first movie feature film before slacker just kind of traveling around on trains and going various places and that book and that movie i think of a lot because i watched that movie for the first time Um, I love to travel and I hate to fly. So I tend to drive everywhere. I've done the exact drive they do in this book to Los Angeles, you know, a dozen times when I go out to Los Angeles for work and come back, I will do this drive, not this exact drive. I don't understand why I went through Pennsylvania at the beginning, maybe because the interstates were different back then, but I take basically the exact same route that they take in this book to, to go out and then a slightly different route coming back. So I've done this around a lot, but I also take trains places. Uh, I lived in New York and my parents lived in New Orleans for many years. And when I would go down to New Orleans, I'd drive or I'd take the Crescent city down there, 25 hour train ride. Also when my parents lived in Calgary, I would take the train to go see them. And that's a 58 hour train ride that I would take from New York to Calgary, 10 hours up to Toronto, switch at Toronto, take a Canada rail, uh, all the way to Edmonton, because the train doesn't go to Calgary, get picked up in Edmonton and drive down to Calgary three hours away. And that's a 58 hour train ride with a little layover. It probably takes you closer to 60 hours, 62 hours, if you're being honest with yourself. And I watched It's Impossible to Learn to Plow by Reading Books. Wow, on that train ride for the first time. <laughs> and it's such a disorienting experience when you're on a train for so long. And like the only thing you've seen all day is Winnipeg, you know, to watch a movie that's somebody on a train and buses all day. Uh, So that's why it really stuck in my in my mind, maybe. But you can see I'm stuck on this and stuck for analogs because it is got a weird tone. What would you compare this book to? Did you come up with a good comparison for it? Well, like I said, I,
0: I think you know it's the traditional road movie narrative, and again, kind of with screwball things thrown into
1: it. And I think I really narrative movies, the road movies have a tendency to be mythic in some way, especially American road movies. Mm-hmm. This movie's not mythic; it's anti-epic. It's not like uh, like um, well, that's what I meant when I said kind Hawk of. He doesn't go
0: that route. Like... Right. Doesn't go the existential yeah. philosophical route with this, even though there's a lot of philosophy thrown about by the characters. He definitely goes more of the screwball you know romantic kind of idea where you know there's yeah. a person who you know these characters they're falling in love they're not they can't be together you know they kind of change each other's minds on things but the thing that I held on to the whole time as a Westlake fan again by being like this is a nephew novel without the crime in it because yeah. like you said it has that kind of Westlake voice obviously it has that sort of interesting descriptive uh, of the things that they see outside and the places where they stop but mainly it's the romance of this fish who's taken out of his tank and thrown out into the ocean and, you know, for the first time in his life and is able to experience something that doesn't really, you know, wow him or inspire him in any way. But he finds everything interesting, even the, the similar hotel rooms at every Holiday Inn is something that he yeah. finds fascinating.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny to go back to the screwball thing. It's not screwballish in that way. This is a very slight, it's got like crime novel realism to it. It's not necessarily grimy. And I would say that one of the things that I was thinking about when reading this book, and especially now that you've mentioned screwball comedies twice, um, with, there's there was 50 pages added to this version. The version published in Red Book, is not this version. They added 50 pages to get it up to novel length. It's still a very, very quick read. And this 50 pages essentially is um, uh, there's a, the cab breaks down. So they get stranded in this small town for a little bit and they like meet the mechanic there. And it's sort of it's very much narrative padding. If, if the whole book weren't narrative padding, you know, it's kind of an, an arbitrary obstacle to keep them anchored in one place and make them do other things than just sit in the cab, right? And that 50 pages after the breakdown, when you have the mechanic who's wearing a shirt that doesn't have his name on it because he got a box of surplus shirts. So his shirt says Fred, but his name's Dave. And the one that is labeled uh, Jerry is actually George, right? And would you like one that says Tom on it? We've actually got ones that said Tom. Here's one named Ace for Catherine, right? that's a, like, I like that character, but it's more overtly comedic. And then we are introduced to this old couple who's in a Royals Royce, who just picks them up off the street, and makes them get in the cab, total narrative contrivance, and then drive around and drink them. And they uh, drive around and drink with them, even though they're in uh, the border of Colorado, Kansas, they're going to speakeasies and they're elegant. And the main character describes them as act, acting like uh, Nick and uh, Nick and Nora from the Thin Man series, right? And they're sort of that pre-screwball pre-screw, era, but the Thin Mans are definitely like screwball-esque in their own way. I'm sure some yeah. people would say they're straight up screwball. But you probably don't that, remember,
0: but you picked the Thin Man as one of your pairings last time we did a Westlake book and we did double feature.
1: Oh, did, oh yeah, that's a good yeah. pairing for that one. <laughs> um, but that section threatens to get wacky. You know what I mean? It threatens to get screwballish, And to me, wacky is the worst thing an artwork can be, right? It's even worse than boring. When something's like wackiness, I can't stand it. Like Harold Boyd can be great, but he's frequently wacky. You know, a Carrot Top movie is wacky. Buster Keaton is never wacky. You know what I mean? Thin Man is never wacky. Some of the sequels are not so great, but it never gets wacky, right? And this section threatens to get wacky. And that's why I think you're right that it's on his mind in some way, the kind of archetypes he could fall into. But then after they've spent the time with this couple, um, Catherine and Thomas have this conversation about them that's like, I didn't find them charming at all. They are living a life of quiet desperation as they get older and sort of not they're locked into these roles with each other in a marriage and that's kind of miserable actually to be locked in these roles even as one of you is dying and have to pretend like you still want to be these people and if you can't show any crack to it there won't be anything there so i think it redeems that because they are supremely irritating characters and i got the impression you were supposed to be charmed by them until the Mm -hmm. main characters were like no that's not charming that's depressing and i was like oh westlake how i like he you pulls as a, a fast writer.
0: one on you i love that i was also but he's was trying to really critique
1: interested. screwballish tendencies was my only point but go on yeah sorry. no
0: no absolutely no absolutely yeah. it's just a template no he's doing yeah. his westlake thing he's not doing yeah he's not copying a screwball kind of uh, scenario but but i just I, bring really... that
1: up as that's another reason why it's an unsatisfactory comparison it's just hard to compare, yeah but yeah
0: on. for sure no, no, I'm saying I'm, I'm holding on to the Westlakeness of it. You know? Yeah. I, I love that. Like that turns out to be something, you know, that turns her against marriages. A lot of things, you know, that happened to them do the idea of, you know, what your, your role is once you're in a married life. But what was also really fascinating was them talking about the prohibition laws still being in place in Kansas at that time, which is the late seventies. And I looked it up. Do you know, even flights at that time, when they flew over to kansas they couldn't serve alcohol like they were really like yeah. that serious at the well, time there's about... still
1: there's still plenty of dry counties my mom's from a dry county in kentucky there's still plenty of places that's that interesting
0: are... i've never <laughs> been to a dry county i don't think so yeah that, that was interesting to, to hear that but but yeah no i think that you know he subverts a lot of kind of the classic tropes of uh, or the classic um, uh, models of you know this kind of a road movie but he makes it his own and, and you know they it's more fascinating to you know when they end up in the backyard in the back road motel and they're not at the holiday inn and there's absolutely nothing to recommend this place except that, you know, it's their place now. Like they're the only people there. They're getting served this very strange meal that these people are putting together for them. And even though at that they're getting towards the end of the trip and tensions are a little high between them at that point, you know, it brings them together because they realize like, this is the kind of trip that they're looking for. They're looking for their own unique kind of experience when they're out there uh, together and that's romantic in and of itself even though these two characters don't get together ultimately and you get the idea that it's very good that they don't get together they wouldn't be right for. well do
1: they that's i think i think the ending is supposed to be that final chapter a lady or the tiger type ending are you saying with barry they don't get together
0: no 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 i mean with tom and and, and catherine yeah i mean yeah it's, it's ambitious it's ambiguous like maybe they'll get together maybe this means that you know something will happen with them. But I like the actual plot of the book being like, he puts his arm on her and she points to the cab where it says, keep keep your distance. You know, I I like that he keeps them apart.
1: Yeah. Well, I also like that this character is set up in some way to be a contrast to the plastic surgeon that she's going to marry out in Los Angeles, who's incredibly good looking and seems a little glib. And he's this sidewalk philosopher, as you say, and he's gonna be in contrast. And he's, you know, uh, everywhere they go, people assume they're a couple and treat him as the man in charge. And he demures from it and tries to think up ways to put less of the pressure and let her take charge. And he presents himself in the beginning as a very enlightened kind of man, right? And that sort of degrades and falls apart as the book goes on. We sort of see that he's less and less enlightened than he thinks of himself as being and the ways in which he's more and more traditional and the ways in which Barry is a more and more interesting character and a more likable guy than he might be till when at the end of the book, I think it's sort of switched position where he's the person who now wants to trap her. You know, that that's not if they get together, it's not this is the right person for him. It's that he's just switched positions with Barry, right? That marriage is always going to be a trap for her that she doesn't want to be a part of. It's always going to be the wrong thing for her. And men aren't just are never going to be able to understand that around her because they do desire her so much and are charmed by her so much that that it's just like the trap has changed, that there's sort of a a continuity to what men want, uh, around her and want from her there's a continuity even when they think of themselves as being the progressive non-judgmental you know sympathetic to the ways in which she's reduced and demeaned as a woman just by her natural existence in ways in which sexual stereotyping demean and reduce her in some ways which she takes all in stride she's a very powerful commanding woman she's an executive so she's never bothered by any of it and she's always very in charge of everything you know, but by the end, you get the sense that that he just wants to be another Barry, you know, with her. And that also that that if she had played things differently, she maybe could have had Barry in an unmarried way and could have figured something out because he is so understanding. Um,
0: yeah, and especially because throughout the trip, you know, he's shown that he is sensitive to these you know, stereotypes that she's forced into when they bring the bill, you know, and they hand it to him and he says, give it to her, you know, like she's the one ordering, like, you know, talk to her, don't come talk to me. And That happens to
1: me all the time when I'm out with my sister and I always want to be like, do you understand how much more money she makes than me? Do you guys understand that? Like, it's like 10 or 20 times more money than I make. Like it's give her the bill. I know this is a pizzeria, you know, and I could pay my half, but give her the bill, please. And it's constant. I guess that's just when I'm in Texas, when I was visiting her in Texas, that would happen a lot, not as much in, in New York.
0: But it's a good point about Barry, though, especially how he shows up for the last 40, 30 pages of the book. And he's not what you expect. And even Tom has that moment where, you know, he hears he's a successful plastic surgeon living out in L.A. and gets a very specific mental image in his head. And she shows him his picture. And it immediately is like, oh, he actually just looks like a nice regular yeah. guy um and mary has his own kind of like interesting philosophies where she relates the story of the the woman who comes up to him at dinner who he's worked on yeah and thanks him for you know fixing her face and uh, she says you know she can't believe how blank and plastic she looks and he says oh when she was beautiful you know, she was when she was naturally beautiful she was miserable because people thought when she looked like a normal person everyone just thought that she you know
1: had a head full of ideas, head, and she, she doesn't. You know, yeah, exactly. She's and she just wants blank. to be and left now, alone.
0: Now she looks like what she is, and people just completely leave her alone. Yeah. Is a really striking sort of uh, thing to reveal there. I really like that part.
1: Yeah, it's such a strange reversal, and such a strange reversal about how we think about the roles that we force people into by our perception of them. You know, especially with beauty, and especially with how women's beauty forces them into roles, and how like maybe some people just want to be left alone and don't want to have the pressure of being interesting, you know, to just be a blank beauty is a is a funny, you know, uh, philosophical jujitsu that Westlake is doing after he's taken so much time to set up Catherine as a woman who's reduced and diminished, uh, who's very ambitious and intelligent and forthright, who her whole career has sort of had to fight against that and comes out of uh, she went to college in 68 and comes out of that second second wave feminist mindset. You know, that kind of, but wouldn't the world be better with no men whatsoever kind of mindset uh, uh, that to have the exact opposite of that, that, and in fact, there are women who would just prefer to be blankly pretty and you thinking they want to be like Catherine is still forcing them into a sexual stereotype, you know, right, that you're right. still diminishing. But the themselves. fact that she
0: still pigeonholes herself into this decision yeah. that she can't like move forward or, or decide that this is what she wants, you know, compared to, Sue Ann, who uh, they meet at one of the Holiday Inns, she's a waitress who ends up hooking up with Tom, and this is a woman who, you know, like Tom, is completely unambitious in her life. But she makes decisions. She decides to go to bed with this guy, and enjoy it for what it is, and then just kind of move on with her life. And she almost, because she doesn't have these pressures, she doesn't put all this kind of, you know, uh, worry about the roles that she has to play all the time. She's weirdly more enlightened than you know. Uh, Catherine is in that moment that she just is happy is completely comfortable with who she is being a waitress in a small town and just living her life.
1: I don't, you know, yes. It's funny because we're talking about this book that to me, I don't want to get off the subject yet. Cause I don't feel like I've, it, this is an extremely puzzling book, John. And you seem very <laughs> not puzzled by it. It's a book that I can see developing a cult reputation because it is puzzling, but only in a very specific set of circumstances would sort of have to fall its way. Do you think that Westlake fans are going to embrace this book? Do you think any audiences would embrace this book? And if so, like what audience? Don't, uh, don't you it's think funny, a little bit I, how I hard cases is presenting yeah, it?
0: I have, I have it the exact the opposite reaction to you, where I think it's so much less complicated, honestly. I think this is a book that Westlake fans will love because it feels like his nephew books. I think it'll, it's a book, and, and is great. I, I feel like it's a book that regular people who you know maybe don't like crime fiction or know nothing about Wesley could enjoy because it is such a straightforward story. I think it's kind of a win-win scenario, honestly. I think seeing the Rain fans will enjoy the reference. You know?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just don't. I just don't know. I guess. I guess you're right. I just was so. Um surprised by it even being told there's no crime in it Uh, it's it's just it's a i found this book extremely puzzling i sort of feel like i know why he put it away it feels a little Mm. like he was writing it kept on thinking a big story thing would happen, would come to him at some point that he'd go on the road trip with these characters and something would happen on it that would be make it huge and big and send it off the rails in another direction and it never does and so the result is a very good but slight book that's, that's very miniature in its pleasures and intentions, which I really love about it. But it also feels like the thing that was supposed to happen, the thing didn't happen. You know what I mean? Is also mm. what it feels like to me is that like whatever the thing was supposed to be didn't happen. You know, in this book, which and is what I like about it, is that
0: it has all these yeah. great little moments. You know, yeah. it has her writing the short story about the, you know, the world with, where you know women are impregnated by honey and have daughters instead of males, and so the men, male population is dying out. And yeah. What that means so this
1: is a human. this is a novel that Catherine wrote that John's going when she to was talk. in college. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And, and before I read the afterward and realized, you know, the publication history of the story I used to figure out what year was taking place, and since she went to college in 68 women's lib was you know happening everything because a a big thing about the story too i think is how women's lib you know so powerful and such a big deal in the 60s had died so so completely by the late 70s or it'd
1: become a weird caricature of itself yeah it it hadn't died it had hollowed out in a strange way hollowed out right that's you know that true believers had gone on to be landscape designers yeah. very quickly that the boomers mm. really by the late 70s it's crazy to think about how in 10 years so how much america changes between like 68 and 78 it's crazy exactly. yeah. nothing's changed in america since in 25 years you know <laughs> what i mean and in yeah. 10 years everything changed you know just it's crazy to think about that
0: but yeah that's a weird time and it's a novel about that time you know and i think tom in a lot of ways is like kind of uh uh like an old-fashioned anar- anarchic kind of character because he's like a cabbie from New York and like the old yeah. yellow checkered cab.
1: Archaic character, I mean.
0: Ar- he's like an archaic kind of out of, you know, touch old-fashioned character because he's this cabbie from New York and this yellow checkered cab. And, you know, he's almost sort of like straight out of like an old time movie and people reacting to the cab going across the country, seeing this New York cab, you know, in Colorado or whatever. It's It's almost like, you know, well, it's because he literally stepped out of like, an old movie. And he's kind of someone who doesn't exist anymore. and certainly doesn't exist anymore in the traditional kind of sense that, you know, cabbies were in New York in the sixties and seventies.
1: Yeah. And what cab driver means and that sort of checkered cab driver. Yeah. Uh, all of that is true. It's, it's a movie that is out of time in a lot of ways, especially reading it in, in 2022, you know, that yeah. It's, oh, yeah, that it's that it is very much a, a, a thing out of time you know, also while reading it, what I realized was, is that, you know, I, I'm not into road movies as a genre, It probably is my least favorite genre. That's like a very popular genre. And I think it's because I've always traveled so much in my life. Like I mentioned, my parents have always lived far away. My sister's always lived far away. You know, she was living in Korea until, you know, two months ago, uh, that I don't, I don't have the experience of travel as it's depicted in road movies usually, but I did think that this book actually got a lot of the travel right in a lot of ways that road movies don't normally. Um, And so I think that's also what I responded to about it.
0: I think what it definitely gets perfect is the thoughts that go through your head while you're traveling across the country where he thinks about slide rules and says to himself, never have I said, oh, if only I had a slide rule. Yeah. <laughs> Though surely there would have been times where it would have been an appropriate thing to say.
1: <laughs> I also love when they go to the ice cream parlor in some town and it's not a made up to look like an old 50s, 40s, 50s ice cream parlor. It's the real thing that's just been like preserved in amber by being in a small town, right? And they go in and the food is that the hamburgers great. The french fries are great. The ice cream is great. There's like a pair of kids you know, talking about dates and cars in the back and a woman and a waitress and black and white and apron. And it's just so out of time. And and he has the sensation of that they describe that as a real road trip sensation of, I could live here. You know, you have that feeling on a road trip when you drive through, there's one or two small towns you'll drive through and be like, this is great. I could live here. I had that in a small town in Wyoming. Once I remember it was like very sort of mountainous area. And it was like, there was like train tracks and like interesting rock formations. And it was over a river and it was like nice and modern feeling. And it just felt like, but completely tiny. And I just felt like I could, I could live here. I could just stop and live here, you know? And that's one of the interesting sensations of a road trip that doesn't get talked about a lot because most road trip movies are about like people with no searching for a destination they'll never get to, right? That's like right. the theme of a road movie is like the aimlessness of looking for a destination you'll never find, as opposed to the, what I have on road trips is constant destinations of I could, I this is maybe, a, this would be great, but you're not actually headed to them. You have to leave places that would, that would be interesting for you. But also right. knowing that feeling is hollow, like what am I going to do in fucking Wyoming? You know, knowing that that feeling of feeling like, oh, there's a lot of places for me in this world, you know, and also yeah. going, well, there's actually not these places for me in this world because there is a place <laughs> for me in this world that I'm headed to, which is fucking terrible Los Angeles that I'm going to have to be in. And it's going to be <laughs> a nightmare and I'm going to be miserable there.
0: It makes me wonder if, you know, there with the, in these internet days of like the romance of the road of suddenly finding the biggest ball of twine in the middle of, you know, oh, I'm going to have to pull over and check out this roadside attraction exist anymore you know if like there's discovery at all or if it's all just the destination these days you know i mean i feel like and again there is some you know as you said threatening to be wacky stuff that you know happened. to these characters they you know uh save a pregnant couple and rather than the airport you know they're having a baby right in the middle of the road uh, they, take, the they take they take the, the
1: pregnant couple, e- couple to a hospital not an airport john I the airport yeah
0: sorry they uh, take them the, to you know, an
1: airport so she can have the baby on a plane which was her dream <laughs> There's them rescuing this is a playing you know, <laughs> baby or i am going to kill it with a hammer i can't believe that's the line in the book
0: there's this bit where they rescue a pregnant couple who are having a baby on the road and you know have to take them to the hospital there's a man <laughs> in the holiday inn with an unstoppable <laughs> vibrating bed you know there's lots of like kind of wacky like side characters and everything and those experiences you know are you know the kind of things that you know like again that make this sort of whole thing sort of a romantic vista for these characters and more so than like a existential road movie it's veering towards screwball but you know real said enough in realism that i think that these are things that you're like oh yeah something like that happened to me i broke down in denver too i broke down in colorado as well
1: yeah they do a great description too of um of coming from Kansas to Colorado, where the the Colorado, the Kansas side of Colorado looks like Kansas, except somehow it's more beautiful. And you do drive through it and you're like, oh, I really like this. Colorado is the state that I think is just most beautiful in the United States. It's it's I've been uh, to 48 of the 50, I've been to the contiguous states uh, and not Hawaii and Alaska. And Colorado really is, is the most gorgeous. The Rockies really are the most gorgeous. And again, another, I could live here kind of place but but in general you know it's kind of like a lot of the country is not that interesting to look at and i love when he's in like indiana and just like this is miserable to be more
0: rocky than this
1: (laughs) but also they're having a fight so they don't even want to look at the colorado river as they're driving by and that's something that happens on on road trips too you know it's funny you mentioned the roadside attraction thing i've never done that have you that kind of road trip where you just stop at random places that's not true i did it once with alan and Lori, our good friend alan cordell and Lori isabella uh who have been together since high school i took a road trip with them once to new orleans and back with them and they wanted to stop everywhere and like go to thrift stops and look at little things and it ended up making this trip take fucking forever like we spent like like we spent like we spent 20 hours in virginia instead of the the seven or eight that it normally takes to drive across like it was just like all day we were in fucking virginia and i was losing my mind at this like we're never we're never going to get home we're never going to get get on this have you ever done a road trip where you really just meander like that i've only done one coast
0: to coast road trip and it was meant to be meandering but not like a planned meandering And not like a stop at every single thrift shop, you know, on the way. Uh, Although I told Jordy, you know, when when we get older, I want to hit every used bookstore still hanging around in America. And burn it to the ground. Absolutely. Get rid of those (laughs) motherfuckers. But but like I said, there were magic moments like, holy shit, what's that up there? And then you stop and then you see something crazy that you didn't know existed. You know, I love the idea of, you know, more of a kind of see things as you go and more experience. You know, I have done that trip.
1: You know when okay. I graduated from college, and the I'm my good friends in college and high school were Scott and Toby from Dr. Dog. They had a their first band that really went on tour was this band Raccoon, also with the great Andrew Jones, who was in Dr. Dog for a bit. And I went on tour with them. Right, I went on this tour with them and accompanied. I had just graduated from college, and that was we stopped everywhere constantly we stopped in bozeman montana and we stopped in billing montana because there were shows in all these little towns and you would go to battle creek michigan and we camped out in north dakota and we did all those kind of things we stopped and looked at the prairie dogs in montana and looking back now that i know that the prairie dogs carry the black plague in a pretty serious way i'm like toby i wish you hadn't gotten so fucking close to those prairie dogs I knew it's a wild animal. It has to just be the worst disease vector in the fucking world for it. But we really did go all around the country. And that's where I went to a lot of the places that I wouldn't have otherwise gone. Like, you know, like Portland, which now I know I never need to go to fucking Portland again in my entire goddamn life. Now I know that about Portland. Or Chehalis, Chehalis, (laughs) Chehalis, Washington.
0: Slightly better than Portland. (laughs) Honestly, can't say that I set out to touch an Indian like Albert Brooks and <laughs> or anything like that. But, you know, and I did have the experience of like a CB guy like flagging me to like pick up my radio and talk to him or anything like that. But I, again, I think that's like, you know, the unexpected things are sort of like, you know, what you remember from trips like
1: that. Yeah. And that was also that was a funny because you're going and you're playing, you know, they were not a big band at that point. We're just playing in bars, you know, at that at that point or small little clubs, you know, kind of thing. And sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, be asked to do three sets. So sitting around and just, you know, in between three sets in a little bar in Omaha, you know, uh, and just that was the kind of places you you got to see and got to to explore in that way. And that was a phenomenal experience. That that was a really life changing experience. Um uh, and and it's amazing that by the places end, where you I can't didn't...
0: open a tab and you're like weird,
1: <laughs> more like places where the bar trivia machine is slightly different. The electronic bar trivia <laughs> is not the exact one I'm used to playing. Um, but it's I'll
0: you, yeah, I'll tell you a moment from this that did really beguile me in a weird way, and I thought about it a lot. I read it read over it twice. Was when they're passing the stretch of highway that she designed. That she yeah. points out, you know, this is my design
1: in Colorado. Yeah. yeah,
0: he finds it, you know, to be amazing. Yeah, And the stretch of, of road after that, he just keeps like, why can't every single road look like her road? Yeah, And I thought about it because it's like, is it because he's falling in love with her that he feels like this particular stretch of, of land is so great? Or is it really something where he'd like to see the whole of the country, you know, change to, you know, be something that is more his aesthetic, is something more like Catherine.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a good, it's a good scene. And also, especially when later on in the book, he finds out that this was a line of work she got arbitrarily into that, like the employment office of her college or placement office, just randomly sent her into that line of work that it wasn't her passion, you know? And so when he's projecting her passion for landscape design onto a landscape and being surrounded by her talent and affinity for nature, and then finds out No, it's just a job to her. And if she had, as she said, if she had been sent to a carpet factory, she'd be doing a dynamite job at the carpet factory and be the head of it there now, too. You know, and I think that that's one of the things that's interesting about this book is the slippery way in which it deals with what these characters truly are. Like, Mm -hmm. what is the essence of these people, you know, where he's an executive who his company folds and he gets laid off and he goes to work for his dad's company. Right. So he's downwardly mobile in that way. Is his true essence, the executive, or is it a cab driver? You know, is her true essence, the, the, just the woman in charge or, you know, a, uh, a landscape designer. And it kind of keeps pushing, you know, is it, is she meant to be with Barry or is she meant to be with Tom or is she meant to be with nobody? Like, what is the essential quality of this person? And the way that marriage is theoretically the joining of two essential people, you know, the uh, joining of, of the your essential quality with somebody else's essential quality, your essence joining with somebody else's essence. So you have to first define that know that if you want to be married and we haven't mentioned that Tom was married and got divorced also in this book that he's in a position of somebody who's not necessarily sworn off marriage but he has a, a a sort of fuck buddy back in New York Rita that's just sometimes she comes in with her keys and crawls into his bed and expects really nothing in return and what is he if he doesn't have an essence how could he ever get Weighted down and married again you know yeah, Weighted down I... and made miserable by a wife you know how it is
0: yeah that's my very favorite moment from the book is when he calls back to see if rita is in his apartment and he just imagines his phone ringing in this empty apartment and has this weird kind of connection to this place far away that's so familiar to him i love that moment but yeah. I, I love that i love that West it's very so it reminds good.
1: me of a ton of the end of Collectionist when the guy is going to realize the oh, girl yeah. is not into him so he calls his girlfriend and just is on the phone with her anyway <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, but I love this about West. Like, I love that he's so good at stripping people down to that essence. That what he's saying, you know, is that Tom would have worked at the, you know, says he would have worked at this place for the rest of his life if they had, if it hadn't, you know, uh, gone belly up. Yeah, and now he thinks he's just going to be a captor of the rest of life. He, him as a person, is that he will accept his his lot in life and stick with it. Hers is that whatever she's given to do, she'll excel at it because that's the kind of person she is, and that's what kind of like moves them past these roles or stereotypes is that they, as a person will do what they will do, you know, in these situations and their relationship dynamic with each other is going to be based on like their own thoughts and their own feelings. And that's how you like really love these characters. And they're just so well drawn out.
1: Yeah. And it's interesting too, the defining moment uh, for, I think both of them, right. Is when she's revealed cause she's like somebody who's, Presented as anxious and uncertain, and making these erratic decisions when she gets in the cab, talking to herself and muttering. And you know, that's when I'm first reading him, like, oh, this is like somebody owes me money. You, here comes the dingbat who's going to completely, you know, throw everything into chaos in this guy's life. And she, you know, contracts him to go on this car trip, on this this cross country road trip to Los Angeles, while she decides to make her decision whether to marry Barry or not. Right. And uh, partway through the trip, when they're reaching St. Louis, uh, she, there's some paperwork she needs to receive To sign because she's very important and that just can't wait. So they're going to fly a messenger with the paperwork to the airport in St. Louis, and she's going to meet him there, sign the paperwork, and he's going to fly back immediately. And that's when he realizes like, oh, she's important. And when she gets to the airport, she like commands the place. She's given a conference room to go into. And her executive assistant, who I think is named Roy, right? Is that what his name is? Roy? something like that he comes in and she sits down at the massive conference table and signs all the papers and makes him stand there behind beside her with the papers right stand there and when tom is looking at them he sees this older guy roy i want to keep calling him roy even if that's his name or not and he's in like a suit that's not like the world's nicest suit And he's got like his hair and he looks okay, but she's clearly in charge and she makes him stand there. And he like gets upset. And it's the first time in the book he's upset. And he talks about how it's fucked up that you made him stand there. And uh, she's like, why? Because I'm a woman. And he's goes, no, no, no. Wait, actually, yeah. Because, you know, he's trying to keep up and he's been passed by and he's older than us. And he was the generation who thought he would have a job like yours just by virtue of being a dude. And there wasn't any uh, competition with women and he's never going to get there. He's never going to get the job he wanted or the life he wanted. He's going to be this like pathetic lackey and just get used up and he's never going to get there. And it's a double kick in the face that it's a woman you know, and that it's the next generation leaving him by. And this upsets me. And it's this really sort of shockingly sexist thing that Tom is shocked by, that he didn't know he had in him, that he didn't know that it was enlightened. She's like, so if it was a man, it would be fine. He's like, yeah, it's a man. Men are always in competition. If he loses, he loses. And, you know, every man knows that. You got to look yourself in in the mirror each day. But for you to represent the world has passed me by and here's the living proof of it. And she makes me stand, right? I found very interesting. And that's sort of the that's to me the moment when you realize um, this is not headed towards Tom and Catherine are perfect for each other. They got to get together at the end and got to get away from Barry, where you realize I don't know who's perfect for either of them. That's really the moment when when they're Uh, facades and who we expect them to be get blown up, especially because she's such a power executive who's been like an indecisive woman this whole time and sort of a a neurotic woman this whole time. And now she's showing, no, she's actually in charge and decisive and commanding. So it's Mm. a great moment that like blows them both up. It also just reminds me not to get too far off track. When I was um, programming the movie theater, we had Harvey Weinstein come and show his favorite movie, which I'm sure you can guess what his favorite movie was, right? What's your guess for Harvey Weinstein's favorite movie? Uh, Oh, I know it's Exodus, right? Claude Lelouch's And Now My Love. Of course it's his favorite movie of all time. (laughs) And we showed it with, even with the uh, European ending, which is like this 20 minute tacked on sci-fi scene, which has made the whole experience fucking bizarre. But I watched the tech screening of it in the morning to make sure the print looked good. Uh, I was like, do we want to show this ending? And was like, he's really hard to deal with. Don't ask him any questions. We're just going to show this version of we got, we're not going to raise any questions to him because we'll get yelled at, right? So I'd watched it in the morning. It's a fucking terrible movie with this ludicrous ending. It's like two hours and 45 minutes long. It's an endlessly long movie. I'm not going to sit there to watch the movie again during the event. I'm going to go sit at the diner that's like across the street. It's like a block away and eat dinner. So I'm sitting in this diner and Harvey Weinstein comes in and sits in the booth directly across from me. So we're like not in the same booth, but we're facing directly at each other and there's no partitions. So it's basically like I'm sitting at a table with Harvey Weinstein. And he made his executive assistant, who was like this young man, stand behind him in the diner the whole time, stand out of his eyesight, just stand right behind him, just stand in the diner. He's not allowed to sit down with them. And all I could think is like, that's so fucking incredibly fucked up. Like how little dignity, this is surely the worst thing Harvey Weinstein has ever done. How little dignity do you have to have to be that guy though, who stands there and takes that, you know? And then the fucking other thing about Harvey Weinstein, he ordered two burgers and two sodas and he double fisted the burgers like a cartoon character. He would take a bite from one, then a bite from the other, then a bite from one. And I was like, I'm walking a, fucking Popeye cartoon and I can't get up and leave because I'm sitting here already. I'm just staring into this fat fuck's face, repulsive human being from top to bottom. And I will say also at that time, I didn't know anybody. If if there's ever any question, it was an open secret are the young women who worked at our theater were told like, stay away from Harvey Weinstein. He's a bad guy who will do bad things to you. You know, like it was just an open secret, you know, like everybody fucking knew even at that point. Um, and it was like, you know, just a very like powerful, like I had the same reaction Thomas does of like, this asshole is going to make this kid just stand here, not even sit down in the booth at the diner, just stand like a, you know, stand, stand here at seven o'clock you know, like to my seven o'clock on the dial and just out of my eyeline and just stand here. And if I need anything, if I need to pour fucking ketchup on these fries and eat them like a toddler who hasn't been properly trained in manners, I'm going to fucking do it, right? And it really reminded me of that, of like, I would blow something up overseeing that. You know, I'm very much like this character where if I did have that visceral reaction, I'd completely blow something up. <laughs> also other other weird thing about that Weinstein story, a bunch of people recognized him in this design, diner, but they were all like blue collar guys and like cowboy hat, not cowboy hats, like trucker hats and stuff come and be like, oh, man, I love your movies. And he'd be like, thank you very much. And in my head, I'm like, what fucking movie do they love? Is it Shakespeare in love? Like, what are you what are you talking about? You just saw a famous person. They or... love restoration. Yeah, they can't. <laughs> get enough of the slaves of soho what is that movie called the one he actually directed
0: uh you mean the marissa tomei dance movie playing for keeps
1: playing for keeps playing for keeps <laughs> not the uh, merchant ivory one but uh
0: <laughs> well yeah i mean there is that moment where they first stop at mcdonald's right where they started the trip and she steals all of his onion rings so maybe that's yeah. a <laughs> common thing of
1: double fisting onion
0: ring type executive types
1: (laughs) i also love when they get the terrible burger there's a bunch of great westlake uh jokes in this where they get the terrible burgers and he says what you don't like What you don't like these delicious burgers she says don't speak badly of them they might be someone we know
0: yeah (laughs) there's a lot of great stuff like that everything with the food is fantastic in this movie in terms of the description
1: great hey, this book <laughs> it's a a lot of great quips in this book this book is very very slight but i love it i feel like it sounds like i'm attacking it in some way but it's more like i'm trying to get a handle on it the only thing i'll say i wrote in my notes the only thing in this book that i thought really rang untrue other than the chasens who are the old couple act like nick and Nora. they are just they're a touch to quirky literary creation i could do without them i like what's done with them ultimately but there's still feel a little phonyish to me is uh when they finally go for a walk after the car is broken down and he's like wow i've never walked anywhere before and it's like a new yorker saying he doesn't walk anywhere (laughs) this rings really really untrue to me but that's like the only thing in the book you know
0: (laughs) interesting interesting uh, I love the Anne Bancroft cameo in The Dream. That was nice. <laughs>
1: it's nice it was to add.
0: E- even though, you know, she's not part of the plot, just having Anne Bancroft involved in your artwork is always a great idea.
1: Well, it's also funny to forget that she was a symbol of like emasculating femininity. Of, yeah, like, she trues-
0: would be perfect if they had made Catherine's yeah. short story
1: into, uh, you know, a movie. <laughs> yeah, because she's so charming and likable now that that's what you think of her as. But in 19, you know... 1978 she's mrs. Robinson, mrs robinson and The pumpkin right. eater and like you know all of these other kind of uh she got typecast as doing mrs robinson type roles right, uh, right which right. sucked because she's so much better than being typecast what and games now do everybody- you pl-
0: what i know the answer to this but what games do you play on road trips do you play super ghosts because i've never heard of super ghost before.
1: oh you don't know what super ghost is i was no. surprised. i was thinking I looked about it up
0: afterwards but I had never oh, okay. played
1: it before. well just to explain to listeners super ghost is this game where each uh, player says a letter right and then the next player builds off of it right with another letter right and you have to be building towards a word and somebody so you know Uh, If I say L, and then you say O, and then I say T, but if it was L-O-O, right, and then J, right, after that, and then I say J, and you're like, there's no word that starts L-O-J, you know, you can challenge me, and if I can't say what the word is, I lose, right, super ghost is, you can not just do letters, you can build in either direction, right, so the famous, uh, 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 James Thurber one, is that, uh, uh, turning under S under U N -N D E R S T, instead of turning your understood into thunderstorm is the, (laughs) is the, is the famous James Thurber one from super ghost. You have to just keep building the words infinitely as far as you can go is the idea. It's not, if you get to a word, you lose, you keep building the words infinitely. It's been a long time since I've played John, you know what we play in the car. We, you play, uh, I'll leave the one that you, Paul Cooney, and I off would play. But uh, we also play the, uh, the IMD. That makes it sound like we were, like, fucking each other in the car. You know those secret, <laughs> secret games that me, you, and Paul Cooney would play with the jism jars. No, we would play the IMDb game, which is very simple of just Clint Eastwood, and then we each list a, uh, a film of his until we run out. And then if somebody hasn't run out, they give the closer to win. You know, that's the main one. And then the alphabet game, which is very simple. You play with kids, you just look at the signs, you know, and find the letters in order. So basically the game goes very quick until you're sitting around waiting for a quality in to show up. That's how the game goes. <laughs> you rip through it, and then somebody's just waiting for the quality in to show up. Uh and then in Parker I actually got this weird little thing. It was a um, it's like a, a tic tac toe board. Uh but each of them is citing a specific thing to make a move, right? So one one of the tic-tac-toe things, it's like a white semi truck. And one of them is like a speed limit sign, you know? So to open them up, you have to see the thing while playing tic-tac-toe. And I do that mm. with, with Parker uh, a fair amount on the trip. But mainly, mainly, he's finally getting old enough. now. We, now we read to each other when we drive. I guess I do all the driving, so he reads to me. And then I get a blood clot from driving too much without taking a break. <laughs> what games do you play? I can't believe we've never played Super Ghost on the way to Toronto.
0: Uh, it's going to have to happen. It's going to be the new car game from now on. Now that Wordle has taken the world by storm, I think Word games are back in. You know, I think people would actually want to play Super Ghost with me while we're on
1: Wordle.
0: a 45-minute or hour drive somewhere. <laughs> that's good to know what one do you um, play what do you play i don't know i haven't taken a road trip in a long time so i don't play anything these days you
1: were just down in virginia yeah what What? you didn't play any games on the drive you don't consider the six hour drive to virginia seven hour drive a road trip not,
0: not when i'm sleeping um you, no, play, no, we play, you
1: play sleeping daddy
0: we we, we do we do uh, variations on the alphabet game uh, usually we pick a topic and we just go through the alphabet, and you know you have to name you know a superhero, Aquaman, Batman, etc.
1: cetera. And, you know, chris, chris Chris, Chris Smith, the peacemaker, got it. Danny
0: uh, but I think that's interesting I really think it's interesting that you uh, that you're struggling with this book in a in a really interesting way, honestly, when I found it such a straightforward delight i I, I really Huh. I mean, I, I know exactly what you mean, and I'm not, you know, surprised when you explain it. But if you had just come to me, come out and said, you know, I'm really trying to grapple with this book a little bit, I would have been surprised. So it's, it's interesting.
1: It's, it's really, it's really just what I said before is that there's no, there's no hook to it and no twist that it is so simple. And it hasn't, an, it's again, it's like, what do I compare it to? Is it like a Hemingway short story? You know what I mean? It has that level of directness and simplicity to it in a certain way. Although obviously, you know, it's, that's just a brutally unfair thing to compare it to. You're just going to kill a book to say it's like as good as a Hemingway short story. But, um, I don't know. It was just hard to kind of, to figure it out. And maybe also what I, maybe my, um, contending with this book was also tied to the fact that like, um, trying to decide about marriage. You know what I mean? That my relationship to marriage is, is that, you know, uh, you know, it's the old Louis CK joke. The best thing about being married is getting divorced. You know, like that, that that's really true. And that, like, I would certainly never, ever get married again in my life. It's just impossible to imagine me getting married again in some ways. Um, but don't
0: you think you could end up like Tom, who made, pretty much made that decision after having a marriage? but then can't help but feel like he wants to propose to Catherine
1: at the end of the book.
0: Like it might just happen.
1: I would never, well, this, my personality is I would never, ever chase after a woman. Now, since, since my divorce, if a woman says bye, then, then bye, you know, I'm never going to be put through the service of indecisiveness with this, you know, Mm -hmm. and just that like, Hey, if I'm not the guy for you, that's, that's cool. I'm not the guy for most ladies. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not the guy for for most people, Um, although dudes are more indiscriminate than ladies Uh, that that that's it's hard to think. I read it and I'm like, I have the realization Tom has late of like, Barry, it doesn't matter whether she wants you or not. This is not the lady for you. You got to get away from her, dude. Like, she's going to make you miserable, you know, and that's that's a lot of when I'm uh, around um, women, even if I really like and admire them in a relationship and get along with them and have chemistry, I have a total realism about the, this is the way in which this relationship will be unhappy. And I can guess quite easily now. And I know, you know, the Jack Burton, you know, the sooner or later I rub everybody the wrong way, you know, <laughs> like, it's just, it's just the way it is, you know, um, where, the same thing too, where it's, you can really like somebody, but also just be like, this person's going to make you miserable. You know, this person's ultimately going to make you unhappy and you're certainly never going to make them happy too. You know, Barry, you should realize you'll never make her happy and your whole job will be maintaining this artificial perfection, you know, with her and trying to make a person happy.
0: Yeah. Always. Yeah. It's also fascinating to think about just people who i've decided this is the person i'm with that's how it's gonna you know that's how it's gonna go that's the person i'm attached to like barry had the attitude barry has in this i imagined him being played by the guy from the always sunny episode uh the gang gang dances their ass off who's with the girl and you know gets really jealous when dennis oh, is yeah, dancing yeah, with yeah. her and he's now on all of the uh, planet fitness commercials um i imagine being played by him and, and that kind of same thing where she you know um, he comes off like he's you know gonna lose to this you know guy who's coming on to her but at the end she says i'm i'm engaged you know that's yeah. that's, what it, that's what it is you know i'm not gonna go off with you and have sex i'm engaged that's what's happening here yeah and that's just like you know how p- people settle into it people like old don westlake and myself you know where we're just like that's what it is and that's i'm happy with it yeah and
1: that that's funny when i got to after a few years ago after a screening of um point blank here at museum of moving image in my neighborhood uh she was there abigail westlake was there after the screening and i got to go oh, up wow. to her with my son's mother and be like our son his name parker after one of the books and she seemed like not thrilled but genuinely like i appreciate that every time i hear that you're not the first and every time i hear it i i appreciate it and it made me feel like i did have a like oh Donald Westlake, he got one of the good ones just in that moment. Like I I could be married to Abigail Westlake, you know, kind of of feeling about it, you know? Uh, But that's also, I think this book also taps into a bit of that, you know, that I could live here feeling, you know what I mean? It taps Mm. into the, I could be with this woman feeling, you know, where if you stop and look at it, if you're Barry or, and then Tom at the end who falls into the Barry role of not realizing, you don't want this in your life. She's saying she never wants to be married and doesn't want to commit to a man in that way. She has other interests. She'd like to live in the planet where honey causes pregnancy and there's no more men, right? Um, When he, Barry should not be with her, you know what I mean? But that feeling when they're on the road trip that Tom has of, um, of, oh, I could live here. I could be with her. I could do this with this woman. We could fall in love, that sort of, fantasy feeling of like this could be my home this little town with the ice cream parlor this could be yeah. my wife you know and that feeling is sort of uh, always illusory in some way yeah. you know and no, i think it's
0: exactly being out in that in that country is what's swaying him that way because he's from new york he would never yeah. fall in love with Catherine in new york yeah he even has that great bit where he says you know in a small town all a car has to do is hit something to be on the news you know yes. as opposed to new york where it would have to like blow up a bridge, you know, or something like that. And it's true, like this quaintness, like is something that is just so overpowering in these parts of America that you suddenly think, oh, yeah, maybe I could like fall into this mundanity in a way that I wouldn't, you know, in my regular life.
1: Yeah. But and don't you think it would be same
0: kind of thing? You know?
1: Don't you think it would be crazy and self-destructive though? If you met someone started dating them and then two weeks later, you move in with them, right? Like less than a month right. later, you move in with them and it's such an unpleasant experience for who roommates that they want you there, that they kick you out. and You've basically got to live on the street <laughs> for a little bit and then you get together and then you're together all throughout college. And then you get married and you have kids. Isn't that a crazy thing to do, John? Absolutely. After two weeks that is isn't that a recipe for unhappiness and then you don't even get never Then you don't even then you don't even have a real wedding you just go to a justice of the peace and you have him deliver <laughs> the the speech from ride the high country this is not a religious ceremony right wouldn't that be that's madness that's never in going Virginia to result in a happy marriage I know. <laughs> no but it did i i think also that was part of my reaction to this book is you kind of go, Oh my God, I hope I'm never Tom. That's my react is. I hope I don't think that like, Oh, this is the woman for me ever again. I hope that never happens. It would be a disaster. Um, <laughs> and just, just be content riding in the cab, man, and hanging out with Rita. That's, that's where it's at. For
0: All you. expense paid trip across the country. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Rita will be there when you get back. You don't want to live in that town with the ice cream stand. I also like when
0: Barry's getting upset at him over the phone and says, so what, what you're, you're scheduling a route. So you'll go through Vegas on, you know, get to see the lights of Vegas on someone else's dime.
1: And I kind of felt like, why not Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) it anyway, why not take advantage? That is one of the funny things though, too, about this book. It sort of skips over Las Vegas in a funny way and doesn't even end up in Las Vegas, but I love on the cross country trip. The stopping in Las Vegas. I, I know people hate Las Vegas and I get why they hate it, but I love that kind of human excess. I I love fundamentally human excess in that way, even with the depressing and weird dispiriting qualities of it are part of what I, I like about it. So the stop in Las Vegas is always one of the things I, I love. I love doing on that trip, especially because then it's like another four or five hours, whatever it is to Los Angeles. So your last leg of your drive is very, very easy after you've pushed yourself through Kansas. And you yeah. really do that. That part through Kansas is like 16 hour day. I'm just fucking doing this. We're going to get all across Missouri through Kansas, you know, get as deep into Colorado as we can and just try and try and push it. Yeah,
0: bring some good music. <laughs> <laughs>
1: i listened to i listened to the last time i did this trip i listened to i had all of the um bad books for bad people podcast downloaded so that's Best just what i listened to there. um that's the way to do it shall we move on to our desserts do you have anything else to say about your terrible marriage <laughs> i do <just> want <laughs> to just take a minute just kidding you you have a marriage
0: i do just <laughs> want to take a minute to uh this, huh, just, just, I'm so glad to have read this you know I mean
1: yeah.
0: Westlake is my favorite male American writer you know I love him so much I love his books I love the story you just told about Abigail Westlake I always I always wonder what her thoughts of the Parker books are you know and yeah. how she likes being Mrs. Richard Stark as well as Mrs. Uh, Donald Westlake and things like that But
1: so John after that segment, which you've now demanded that I cut out, which has been cut out of the episode altogether, from that narrative bump, now we're moving into dessert. And unbelievably, it wasn't more joking about our various marriages. It was unrelated to our personal lives, and you made me cut it. It was directly related to the material of this episode. What it, what is your dessert pairing? I I'm going to go with I'm going go I'm going to go with two for the road with Albert Finney and uh, Audrey Hepburn. I think that of all the road movies that I could pair with this, this is the closest, which is sort of us getting to learn about this couple uh, in fragmented time through the various road trips that they've taken. And I think that if I had to think of a movie that's uh, closest in intent to this, if not style, that it's a road trip that's about a couple and sort of their changing ideas about each other and their disintegrating senses of selves. Um, it would be that one, I think, is the road movie that's closest to what this movie is doing and, and tonally probably closer than a screwball comedy or an existential road movie. It also features Audrey Hepburn's outfits in this movie are fan-fucking-tastic, if you've never seen it. Truly, truly great. I don't know if it's mod, but uh, like modish swinging london fashion sense it's this movie's very enjoyable and it's and it's got a non-linear narrative and it's it's an interesting movie it's an interesting bit of um of filmmaking uh it's 1967 i believe right is that right it's one of like stanley donan's uh last uh interesting movies before he sort of becomes uh, you know mr blame it on rio um it's uh but it's uh, he directed that Lee donan directed blame it on rio <laughs> am i crazy <laughs> now you have me i'm sure you're right I, I i'm less sure that than saying 67 is one of his last interesting movies uh yeah he directed blame it on rio of course he did i'm a little i'm a little more unsure he does bedazzled little prince he really did this really is maybe his last um really good movie
0: good choice. Uh, do you think Audrey Hepburn would have been a good Catherine? Who did you see as Catherine when you were reading the book?
1: That I had trouble with. Uh, that I had trouble with. I think it would need to be someone commanding. I don't think Younger Anne Bancroft would have been a bad choice. I think that that would be if you could have gotten her in Gorilla in Brooklyn era or Nightfall era. I think that that would be an interesting choice, although I guess she's still on genouish at that time. I, I think that 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 would have been an interesting choice. Jane Fonda would have worked, I think, if we're if it's made in the mm. 70s when it came mm-hmm. out. I think Jane Fonda is not a bad choice for it. Who were you seeing as Catherine? I pictured nobody for him. I could not picture him at all.
0: It's funny because I think I've told you, I think it might have been mentioned on this podcast before that uh, somebody owes me money. I always saw the cabbie being played by Steve Buscemi mainly because I could just hear his voice yeah. doing those that dialogue. He's not obviously like a classic leading man, but he seemed like the exact right amount of schlubbery for a Westlake nephew type character. So I couldn't help but thinking of him for uh, Tom, but it's not right, I know. But that's that's all I could think of throughout the whole book is here, hearing Busemi's voice doing that uh, that dialogue. He would do great in the audio book if he ever wanted to do something like that, for sure.
1: And who's your Catherine?
0: Catherine, I... <laughs> I actually pictured someone I knew in that role, an actress I know, Jen Johnston. Very good for it. it wasn't Jen? No, it wasn't Jen Johnston. But Amy uh, Teeples was
1: it? it Amy Teeples was Amy Teeples. You got, <laughs> you nailed it. Um, that's great. That's going to mean a lot. Can we say thank you very much to Hard Case Crime for providing us with advanced copies of this book? They provide us copies. of the not I thought. You, what was your? You waved it off three times. You did your little hand gesture waves. I'm leaving in that thanks to hard case. No, no, no. I'll do a hard case thing at the end here. No, you won't. <laughs> this episode's going off the rails. What is your dessert pick for the last goddamn time? We're at We're at you go f-
0: first. That's all I gave you was
1: you go first for the we're dessert. At, th- we're at three doing. and a half hours of recording of, <laughs> right now. Do you know how much of this episode we're going to have to cut? All
0: right. My dessert. So for ordo in double feature the second half of double feature i picked a jim jarmusch movie and i'm gonna do another one for this
1: oh Um, i know what you guess broken flowers no i did broken flowers
0: for ordo that was the one i picked before Wait,
1: is that what you just said god damn it this is i'm losing (laughs) it are you picking stranger than paradise no it's got to be night on earth
0: it's night on earth the Gabby movie exactly
1: you are Um, the boxing man that's, that's Night on Earth, right? Am I getting that right? <laughs> I heard you on the radio. You he are the, the boxing. Other boxer, man.
0: Jesus. No, it's uh, it's Jim Jarmusch's anthology cab movie set in LA, New York, Paris, Rome, and Helsinki. Like any anthology movie, it's got its great segments and its not so great segments. Uh, the best one, in my opinion, is the New York episode where Armin Müller Stahl is an East German immigrant who picks up Yo Yo, played by Giancarlo Esposito. Uh, who takes over driving the cab and it becomes apparent that uh, Armin mueller stahl doesn't know how to get to Brooklyn or even how to work an automatic (laughs) transmission. And Rosie Perez, you know, gets in on the action. It's just, it's a delightful thing from the beginning to the end. It's these characters who have no reason to interact normally, you know, kind of become this like cool little group of people for a while. I love that. Uh, The Paris section with uh, Isaac de Bankel is great. Um, Helsinki has, you know, kind of, Korizmaki stable of actors. I think this is sort of Jarmish's, you know, attempt to kind of pay homage to like films he loves by Chorus and Spike Lee and things like that. It's it a lot of their regular people involved. And it's, you know, a delightful little film, not one of my all-time favorite Jarmishes, but it's a it's like this. It's it's just the right amount of slight, I think, yeah. you know, to just kind of sit back and enjoy and oh, night on earth is on. i watch 15 minutes of it. You know, I really
1: like this this segment. It's one like I always kind of overlook thing. because it is slight. It's always one that yeah. I'm always like, "Oh, that's not one of his best." And then I watch it, and I'm like, "That's a very, very good movie."
0: Yeah, you always think of like that's the one that's slumming, but then you're like, "Oh no, 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 that's coffee and cigarettes." <laughs> like this yeah. is this is at least better than coffee and cigarettes. At least it's it's you know, you the worst Gina of Rutland's.
1: it's the worst of the ones that are actually truly great, but it's still yeah. truly great. You know? Yeah.
0: No, absolutely, it's great. Um. So yeah, this is great. Thank you, Hard Case Crime. Thank you, Charles the Day. Thank you, uh, Catherine Carroll, publicity director for the advanced copy of this book. Uh, thank you for everything you do, guys. We really enjoy all your uh, material and all the great writers that you put out there. I was just recently reading a book on Robert McGinnis, and I and I read this thing where Charles the Day uh, was putting together the idea of what they're going to do for the artwork for Hard Case, and he said, "Who who does artwork like Robert McGinnis?" And the the guy he talked to said why not get robert mcginnis and they did and so (laughs) one who did all those early great covers for them um so just love love their output and thank you so much guys thank you chris i hope we can take a great road trip together and hit some holiday inns uh sometime soon
1: we don't really stay in hotels i guess
0: now we're drive all night kind of guys
1: yeah we really are like busted on through kind of guys until we get to to where we're going sleep in right. the car kind of guys that's the kind then, of road trip and we then do. we're
0: sleeping to paul cooney's parents
1: <laughs> <laughs> driving all night long